I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. And I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. At the start of this summer, in June of 2023, the people of Western New York were alerted that buses filled with asylum seekers and refugee immigrants were headed to the Buffalo area, Cheektowaga to be exact. Unlike the buses of migrants that had been sent to places such as Martha's Vineyard by elected officials wanting to score political points, These buses were sent out in an attempt to alleviate the overwhelming number of migrants, over 100,000 since April, that had been arriving in New York City and were straining their resources as well as the city's seemingly sizable immigration court systems. Erie County Executive Mark Polenkars first sounded the alarm that some of the New York City migrants would be arriving here in western New York back in June. As has been reported to me, the 50 individuals represent at least 12 different languages and nations, and it appears the largest nationalities are from the Congo in Africa and Venezuela. Every one of the local organizations are ready and able to provide any needed services for them under the contract with New York City. This is not new to them or to Buffalo and Erie County. In fact, on any given day, There are hundreds of asylum seekers, refugees, and other legal immigrants working with all of these organizations in their quest to become the newest Americans, or as sometimes is the case, Canadians. On behalf of the people of Erie County, I want to let everyone know that we are a welcoming community, we know how to do this, and all of the organizations that I talked about are working with Jericho Road, who is under a contract with New York City. They are being paid by New York City. Uh, I know there's been, unfortunately, in the last 24 hours, a lot of racist and bigoted statements on social media and other places. But as I've noted in the past, unless your ancestors are Native Americans, everyone came from somewhere else. These are asylum seekers who are legally in the country, and we will assist them through the various mechanisms that exist, including all of these organizations in their hope to become Americans. The first wave of buses brought approximately 220 migrants to the Cheektowaga area where they were housed in hotels near the airport. Two of those in the initial group were Alberto and his wife. His real name is not Alberto. That's just an alias we chose to protect his identity and to not jeopardize his petition for asylum. We are put in touch with him thanks to the folks of Jericho Road Community Health Centers, one of the many refugee settlement and aid organizations in the Western New York area. What follows is a translation of the conversation we had in Spanish with him in late June 
about his harrowing trip out of Nicaragua, the life he left back in that country, and his message for the people of this country, the one he hopes to someday consider his new home. Alberto, thank you so much for joining us on What's Next. A good day to you, Lorenzo. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'd like to say thank you to the people of Buffalo for allowing us to share our story in the hopes of getting to know our experience a little bit more. At least on my behalf, I'd like to welcome you here. Uh, this is now your city as well. We're known as the city of good neighbors, and I hope that your time here is filled with peace and that your process to residency is an easy one. I'd like to begin with how you got to this point. You were transported by bus from New York City, but how did you get to that point? We got to New York City, Manhattan proper, specifically. I had spent seven months in the United States up until the point that we made our way to the city. I was meaning to ask how the last few weeks have been, but in this case, your journey has taken months? It's a bit complicated, really. You have a certain set of expectations when you enter this country, but then you're quickly met with the reality of the situation. I arrived here in December, and along with my wife, we've attempted to do everything by the book. But roughly two months ago, we were in a very complicated personal situation, and we had to seek out help, support, and housing from the many refugee support groups here. Where were you before New York? What was your point of origin? We are originally from Nicaragua. Back in Nicaragua, we had been supporting the fight for democracy in our home state since 2018, a place where democracy has been crumbling since. I'd like to go into more detail about the state of affairs in your home country of Nicaragua, because as I mentioned before our interview, uh, my parents also fled an oppressive government in Cuba, and I know firsthand how much of a challenge it could be to emigrate under those conditions. But before delving into that, I'd like you to provide as much detail as you're comfortable to share about how you made it into this country. Sincerely, Lorenzo, you're faced with a number of difficulties throughout that trajectory. For one, you encounter a great deal of xenophobia. From the moment you leave your country, you face discrimination, xenophobia, and most importantly, because you're separated from your family, you're susceptible to abductions, blackmails, extortion, arrest, police abuse. And if that wasn't enough, there's still the challenge of covering your everyday costs, including the need to have multiple forms of currency for each country that you cross into. I assume that you traversed all this distance by foot. How many countries was that? Three countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. Merely by foot, or did you have to use automobiles or buses? To tell you the truth, in our case, we had to literally flee out of Nicaragua. So yes, a portion had to be on foot, and then later on by bus. But the hardest part was getting through Mexico. It was very tough. It's an extremely large country to traverse. Yes, the hardest part of this journey was getting through Mexico. 
You mentioned fleeing from dangers in your home country of Nicaragua. You had to leave family members back home, in particular your two daughters back home in Nicaragua. Something something I couldn't imagine I could do as a parent. It has to require dire circumstances in order to commit to that. Just how long was that portion of your journey from Nicaragua to the Mexico-U.S. border? Our path from Nicaragua to the town of Matamoros, Mexico, took a total of 10 days. 10 days where we were faced with a number of complex obstacles. Were they monetary issues? Problems with the government? A little bit of everything. Upon getting to Guatemala, we were faced with financial obstacles. We practically left Nicaragua with just the clothes on our backs. In Guatemala, we faced abuse from law enforcement. They extorted us, stole our money. When we managed to finally enter Mexico, we practically had to pay for security. We didn't have the money, the knowledge, nor contacts to hire a coyote. We crossed by our own accord, which made things very complicated. For those that may not know, Mexican coyotes are basically smugglers that are paid to get through all the roadblocks and obstacles that migrants face going through Mexico. Alberto, where would you say that you faced the biggest challenges? Was that in Mexico? Yes, Mexico was it. I understand that Mexico is currently facing a wide range of internal and political issues. Was that part of the problems that you faced traversing the country? Yes. There's a lack of internal ethics, which is why we faced the aforementioned abuse at the hands of the police. The same police would kidnap you. The same police will try to defraud you. The same police will extort you. The police are also a source of the discrimination, xenophobia, and human violations. These are all the things you have to overcome in order to get to the border. You and your wife finally make it to the American border. How did that part of the journey go? Very surreal. It's almost funny and sad at the same time. When we got to it, we hadn't realized that we had arrived to the Rio Grande. We crossed Mexico using Google Maps, and when we were near to the river, it was far too late at night to figure out a way to cross the river, specifically how to cross the waterway. Considering the area of Mexico and the part of the river that we found ourselves, we were very desperate. It was life and death for us. Much like how we left Nicaragua, it was very much like what we said then, keep moving forward and don't look back. That river is massive. Uh, there are parts of that river that span 300 feet or more. Did you swim across? Was there a low-lying low area that you could walk over? How did you cross the Rio Grande? Lorenzo, the truth is that when we reached the banks of the river, we realized that it was practically impossible to cross it. That's how dire the situation appeared. It was a violent, raging river. What we did as a life-saving measure was to tie empty jars and jugs to our waist in order to float. We swam and floated across that way. I'm a pretty tall individual, and not once did I reach the bottom of the floor of that river. It was impossible. Somehow we were able to cross it. We were very thirsty and dehydrated. The river would pull you back a lot, but we did it 
with those makeshift floating devices. Wow. And how long did it take to traverse the river? In that moment, things happened very quickly. But if I had to put an exact time to it, it was about half an hour to swim across. So you cross the Rio Grande, and you touch what you might assume is American soil. Then what happened? Just like when we got to the Rio Grande and didn't realize it, we didn't know we were in the United States when we crossed over. I didn't have a phone anymore with me. It didn't have reception out there. I didn't have the means to orient myself. At what point did you lose your phone? Nowadays, you'll be hard-pressed to find a paper map anywhere here. Google Maps was basically your only means of navigating out there, I assume. I actually crossed the river with it, but it didn't make it. It was damaged by all the water, so we did not have it once we finished crossing. And what do you find once you cross into the U.S. side? We came through an area known as McAllen, Texas, and there were helicopters, ice patrol cars, and agents. I sought them out and turned myself in so that I could declare political asylum. Upon getting to Texas, how was the messaging and the guidance provided to you by ICE and Border Patrol once you were being processed? From Texas to New York City, where you eventually boarded the bus to get to here, were you, were you properly informed about your next steps? When they detain you, they tell you about the period of time you get to claim asylum and continue the process. They also provide a phone with GPS, and that's also how you remain in contact with them. Just to clarify, in regards to seeking asylum, is Nicaragua considered a United Nations refugee nation? Does it have that designation? I don't believe so, but we currently meet the criteria here in the U.S. and in Europe to claim asylum due to the conditions in our home country. When I was told about your case, the thing that stood out was that you were from Nicaragua. A lot of the refugee cases we're hearing about here in the United States hail from Western Africa, Mexico, a number of them fleeing from the Maduro regime in Venezuela, Cuba. I'd like to provide a figure for you. Please do. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, has stated that what we are currently seeing in Nicaragua is the largest migration of people since the Cold War. It's more than 150,000 Nicaraguans that have fled due to the destruction of democracy and the injustices that protesters are facing in the country. I have limited knowledge of the political situation in Nicaragua, and most of it comes from having a number of friends from there. But I know that the main players that I've heard of are the Sandinista National Liberation Front and the president, Daniel Ortega, could you describe the conditions in your home country that forced you to leave? In all honesty, Lorenzo, I chose to leave the country because I fear for my life. This was due to refusing to go along with orders that go against my values and principles. In Nicaragua, there is a complete destruction and dismantling of democracy currently going on at the hands of the Sandinistas. Sandinismo has existed in my country since 1979 and continues currently to this day through its current president, Daniel Ortega. 
I'd like to state something directly to the people of Buffalo, to the Catholic Christian people of Buffalo. In the last year, there have been more than 60 clergymen, including deacons, nuns, seminarians that have been expelled by the government of Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo. More than 30 clergymen have been exiled by the order of the Pope in order to protect their lives. Ortega has robbed over 16 clergymen of their citizenship. He has shut down religious newspapers, radio, and television stations. He expelled the papal envoy to Nicaragua, as well as 18 nuns from Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity from the country. This was solely against the Catholic Church. He froze church bank accounts, seized their property, and if that wasn't enough, I'd like to report to everyone listening that the Bishop of the Matagalpa, a pastor of 56 years, Rolando Jose Alvarez, still remains under police custody since August 22, 2022. He refused to be extradited and lost his citizenship, and due to that, he was charged with conspiracy and treason against the state. A man who has only served his country throughout his life, they have him in isolation. I pulled it up here. I'm looking at it right now. It's a sentence of 26 years. A 26-year prison sentence. It's something unheard of. This is what I need to convey to the people of Buffalo, to the Catholic community. You have to understand that in Nicaragua, there's been a destabilization of the political, economic, and religious spheres. The living situation in the country is unsustainable. A high colonel in the Nicaraguan government Oscar Mojica, said there are three options available to the dissenters, exile, jail, or death. The government of Nicaragua is what forced us to leave our home. I believe at the beginning of this interview, I stated that I fear for my life because I failed to follow rules that run contrary to my own ethics. That's what's happening. Nicaragua doesn't have many options. It's death, jail, or exile. I'd say that those are not, not the greatest of options. I'm speaking with Mr. Alberto. He and his wife left Nicaragua about seven months ago, passing through Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico, and now find themselves here in the western New York area after having been bussed over from New York City. But let's go back a little bit. We left off with you turning yourselves in at the border to ICE agents without going into too many of the details that might jeopardize your petition for asylum. What happened after that point in time? I have to tell you, once we cross into the United States, you can notice immediately that the country is rich in sovereignty and liberty. It's palpable the moment you step foot in it. You see the Border Patrol agents, but was there anything else that made you feel... That, that certain way. When you decide to leave your country, all you need to see is a piece of land where you can express yourself freely and can be free. And when you cross over into the United States, my body felt it. When we crossed over and the border agent asked me where I'm from, to which we responded, from Nicaragua, that agent knew all about the situation that's going on over there. I couldn't have been the only Nicaraguan national that he's encountered. And he was very knowledgeable about our plight, offered suggestions, water, a jacket. 
we started filling out all the necessary paperwork. I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy, but a brief stint at a detention facility paled in comparison to all that we had experienced up until that point. I at least felt the freedom to speak openly, something that I guarantee I wouldn't be able to do back in Nicaragua. If we were doing this interview back in my home country, I wouldn't have been able to finish this interview with you because they'd find me and lock me up before then. There are no civil liberties in Nicaragua. Meanwhile, here, I'm in a program to seek asylum here and able to speak. That gives me a great deal of comfort and solace. Is there any concern for the well-being of your loved ones back in Nicaragua? Regrettably, Lorenzo, we had to leave our family members that associated with us. We were faced with death threats and had to flee the country immediately. But we left everything behind. We left behind the things that are most precious to us. That family that we left behind, our children, have not been able to go to school because they have become victims to persecution. I can't take them to a public hospital or school. And if that wasn't enough, they're not even safe in my own home. I have to keep moving them from city to city in order to protect them. When I left my country, I didn't leave because of financial reasons. I left because of political persecution. But today, I'm now facing a monetary problem because our family that stayed behind depends on the money we send back to them. That's where we find ourselves today. We have to clear our immigration hurdles so that we can seek proper employment here and seek the safety we're looking for. Is there any hope that you'll be able to see them again? Truthfully, since I arrived and got into the asylum-seeking process, I'm still lacking a lot of legal knowledge. As Nicaraguans, we receive what's called a TPS designation, or a Temporary Protected Status Designated Country, which helps us remain protected and not get deported. But that's where we're at, Lorenzo. This part of our journey is just beginning, one that is long and slow-moving. The worst thing, the unfortunate thing here in this case, is that you're just merely starting this process after everything else you've been through. What you stated breaks my heart because, once again, I, I can't imagine how it is going through everything you've gone through. My only hope is that you're all able to reunite in some free land somewhere and get away from the turmoil in your home of Nicaragua. The truth is, my wife and I, we've told our family that stay behind if this glorious country that is the United States, a land of liberty and opportunities, denies me the chance to stay here, and specifically in Buffalo, I'll return to my country with my head held up high and I shall die with dignity. That's what we will have to do. My hope is, and I don't think it will, get to that end result. There's been a long-standing debate as to what should be done with the multitude of migrants coming into this country. And many who are critical of the process are the ones that might not be aware of the actual real-life experiences that those immigrants face. They see immigrants as a problem and not as human beings. That's why I think it's important, so important, to hear about your case and your story so that we can all understand the decisions that you made weren't made frivolously. 
the extreme conditions you faced and the risks you took were done so that you could reap the benefits and the liberties that at the moment are not available to you in your country. That's correct. You've told me that it's not only priests and clergymen that are facing threats and prison sentences. What else can you tell me about the state of the economy and the political landscape of Nicaragua? For those listening, what else can you tell them about the Sandinista Party and Daniel Ortega, a president who, to my understanding, has abolished term limits and has been serving as president of Nicaragua since 2007? That's correct. He can be elected as many times as he chooses to run. The term limits were thrown out in 2014, but he's been in power since 2007, correct? Yes, and if you go further in history, you will find that Daniel Ortega has been in power since 1979. Since 1979, he's been the same president. And yes, there have been two or three other presidents in Nicaragua throughout that span of time, but he's been pulling the strings. I'd also like to clarify to the listening audience that this cancer has been around Nicaraguan politics since the 1980s. The confiscation and seizure of land has been a tactic employed by the Sandinista Front for many years. Lorenzo, my grandfather, my father, myself, and if nothing is done, my children, four generations have been fighting the disease that is the Sandinista National Liberation Front. To give you an example, in the last presidential elections, Ortega captured, incarcerated, condemned, and deported seven of the presidential candidates in Nicaragua. I can list them for you. Cristina Chamorro, the strongest candidate we've had, Arturo Cruz, Felix Maradiaga, Juan Sebastian Chamorro, Miguel Mora, a journalist whose news outlet was seized by the government, Mardardo Mirena, Noel Vidaure. This is not only a Nicaraguan problem, this is a global problem. Look, El Inmueble, the building that was the United States Embassy, was expropriated, seized, by the Nicaraguan government, and the staff was expelled from the country. They took over La Prensa, Nicaragua's longest-running and most iconic newspaper. He confiscated Cien Por Ciento Noticias, 100% News, the aforementioned Miguel Mora's news channel that was one of the ardent critics of the government. All the opposing media radio stations disappeared, many of them as a result of a fire. They took control of many of the means of private communication. They have practically left us no choice. Over 150,000 Nicaraguans have fled the country trying to save our lives. And as I mentioned before, if I get sent back, I will keep on fighting this system. Everyone must. These are just some of the facts. Dissidents also accuse him of spreading misinformation. Since 2021, the human rights collective known as Nicaragua Nunca Mas, or Nevermore Nicaragua, have been forced into exile. It's a lengthy list of injustices. I don't know if you've been up to date on the news out of the country, but Ortega recently met with the president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi. Raisi conducted a diplomatic trip to Nicaragua, to Cuba, and Venezuela, countries that are 
directly opposed to the United States. What can you tell us about how the Nicaraguan government views the United States? It's no secret, Lorenzo. Nicaragua's government, or rather Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo, Ortega's wife and vice president, have always used disparaging language when it comes to, in their words, the meddlesome Yankee empire. But Daniel Ortega came into power much like Hugo Chavez, Venezuela, Evo Morales, Bolivia, like many others. In Cuba, Daniel Ortega spent time with guerrilla forces and side-by-side with the Castro regime. And while there, he became a thief, a murderer, and learned all the tactics that he would eventually use to assume and retain power in Nicaragua. The web of influence that Cuba is a part of is astounding. And like you said, it's no secret that Iran harbors some resentment to the United States, not to mention their own human rights violations and the like. Russia and China have also allied themselves with Nicaragua. From what I have been told, Nicaragua is housing Russian armaments within their borders. It's to be investigated further, but I'm sure that's not to protect Nicaraguans. Another global issue was the COVID pandemic. How was that handled in Nicaragua? Lamentably. Despite the many deaths in my country, it was not seen as this worldwide pandemic. Businesses remained open, as well as recreation centers. The government made no attempt to help its citizens with food or masks or anything. In fact, they raised taxes during this time. Truthfully, the Nicaraguan government did nothing to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. It was business as usual, and a disease was debunked and denied. Students still attended classes. We didn't address the pandemic like the rest of the world seems to have done. Are there any opposition movements fighting the injustices in Nicaragua? Is there any hope for, for change from within? The hope lies with those that are in exile, those that were able to escape because the country has been shrouded in silence and fear. I wasn't able to mention this earlier, but I'd like the people of Buffalo to understand my personal circumstances. I can tell you, I worked at the Dr. Alejandro de Villa Bolaños Military Hospital in the capital city of Managua. Since 2018, we would receive direct orders that we were not to treat any dissidents or opposition members in our hospital. Many of us defied those orders. Orders that were handed down by the country's Ministry of Health. Orders that were given as well by the Workers' Front. Once we went against those orders, we each began to experience direct persecution. Also, these were orders that were given throughout the country, not just where I was. And because of that, we saw many more deaths than there should have been. I dare to tell the story of Alvaro Conrado, a young boy in Nicaragua, a martyr. His only crime in the eyes of the Nicaraguan government was providing water to opposition group members, and he was assassinated by a government sharpshooter. He uttered a phrase, one that shakes up most Nicaraguans when they hear it. It hurts to breathe. For us in Nicaragua, 
it hurts to breathe. We are being asphyxiated by the group in power, and we are, unfortunately, not receiving the international attention or help that we should be getting. We need help to expel the corrupt government in Nicaragua. It would be very remiss of me not to have mentioned Alvaro Conrado, because it hurts to breathe. All of us that are in exile are the hope for an entire country. It's a truly tragic story, Albert. How old was Alvaro? He was no older than 15, maybe 13 or 14. He was just a child. And he wasn't the youngest child that was killed by snipers. A three-year-old. Just to send a message to his father, they murdered his young child. All this has been reported and documented, Lorenzo. I'd like to give you a moment to send a message to our audience. What words do you have for the people of Buffalo and Western New York in regards to all the immigrants that are ending up in this area? People of Buffalo, we have left our homes not by choice. We haven't come to this country seeking the American dream. We have come here merely attempting to survive. I'd also like to say that I don't want to be a burden to this government. I want government officials, I want people to know that we want to be able to contribute to this country. We want to follow the laws and we want to obtain the necessary documents so that we can work and pay taxes. We're hoping to obtain an identification card and all the necessary requirements in order to rent property and live a life here. I want a job so that I could buy a vehicle and have the ability to dream about rescuing and reuniting with our daughters. We want to embed ourselves into society, but we don't want to be a burden to the state. I wasn't one in my home country, and I intend to not be one here. I merely want my ability to work and pay taxes here. We want our independence. It's the only thing we can offer in this country. Alberto, I can't express enough my gratitude to you and your wife for the time and for sharing your story with us. You mentioned your family. Have you been able to speak to your family since you've been here? Yes, we've been able to have some communication. A little unstable, but yes. Would you like to send a message to your country or to your loved ones back home? To Nicaragua, we keep on fighting. We keep on fighting until this murderous regime is done and over with. It's a government that, by United States' own account, has been labeled a human rights offender. It's a government where everyone already knows what they are doing. To the government, wherever there's a Nicaraguan national in the world, the battle against your oppression will continue. Like I said at one point of this conversation, if it doesn't happen for us here in this country, we'll return and continue to fight back in our home country with honor and pride. To die with dignity, because we can't return to our country in its current state. But once again, to that government, we will continue to fight. A quick question, have you been able to get out and see the surrounding neighborhoods? 
Is there any way that we could help the group of refugees that are out here now? Now, speaking for the group at large, we're the only Nicaraguans here, but in general, the conditions are fairly well. We're being taken care of with necessities. But really, the most important thing would be help securing working papers. We're speaking with some of the legal aides here, but the average Nicaraguan is a hard worker. My dream is to become independent, be able to provide for my family, and hopefully be financially able to bring the rest of my family here. Arbeto, the rest of the refugees that are there with you, where are they from and what are the kinds of stories that you're hearing? There are not a lot of us Latinos here, but you're seeing a lot of people from Haiti, West Africa, I think perhaps Nigeria, but not a lot of us Latinos, maybe 10 in total. Is there a good sense of community between everybody? Yes. The stories are all a bit different, but the reasons are quite the same. Security in their home countries and governments that are not taking care of their own. Once again, my gratitude to you for sharing this and much good fortune to you, your wife, and may the cries for help be heard. May Nicaragua see far better days. Thanks to you, Lorenzo, for the opportunity. Many thanks to the welcoming people of Buffalo and the many organizations that have helped us along the way. In all honesty, thanks to the United States for allowing me to plead my case. We're very grateful to all. And hopefully, if the good Lord Christ allows it, after some time to set up here, I promise all of Buffalo that you'll see the finest Nicaraguan restaurant you've ever seen. Hey, now we're talking. Some carne asada, Manuelitas. The renowned Gallo Pinto. Alberto, I haven't had lunch yet. Please do not do this. I also spoke with Catherine Grange, the Director of Advocacy for Jericho Road, about some of the challenges they faced early on and the areas of need here locally. Yeah, so I was called to be from my my bosses at Jericho Road, asked to be in the hotel the day after buses arrive and to do sort of an intake. Um, I specifically was asked because I do speak Spanish and I can communicate with probably 50% of the folks who have come over. And so I sort of sit down with them one by one. I have this intake form that just asks the most basic questions. Where are you coming from? Who are you traveling with? Any medical issues? Any other social needs? And, and, and of course, assuming legal needs. Um, and then just answering some of their questions that they have about the coming days. But I've had the opportunity to sort of get to know these folks and to um, – hear it like you said, to hear parts of their stories. I mean, I don't think anyone would flee, would leave their children, their families um, behind unless they had to, unless death was knocking at their door. Um, and so to know that and then to repeatedly have that confirmed from the stories that we're hearing is really humbling and sobering. Um, I spoke to a gentleman who pulled up a picture on his phone of a notice that he received at his very small business. I think he fixed cell phones. Um, 
And the notice sort of said it had the logo of a local cartel and said, unless you um, pay this certain amount, um, you we promise you that you will have problems and that those problems will be violence and death or deadly violence um, and like if you can't pay, make yourself available to us so that we can ensure that uh, those things happen to you, basically. And that, you know, folks, a lot of times what we're hearing is they'll sort of be chased out of the specific town that they're in and they'll try other towns. They'll try other jurisdictions. They'll try the police. They'll they'll try everything they can to not have to leave their country and their family behind. Um, but when that is not sufficient, when you still don't have protection after trying all those things, your next option is to leave. And and that's what we're seeing. So you can sort of follow the um, conflicts and human rights crises across the country and then watch them um, come to Buffalo. So I want to sort of say as far as to speak to sort of the lack of resources or just this conversation mm-hmm. around who's Please. paying for what. Um, so, I mean, practically speaking, New York City is the answer. Um, there's also just a, a bit of a mix between uh, some state and federal funding that's going into New York City. And then New York City is contracting contracting with an organization called DocGo. Um, and then DocGo is subcontracting with Jericho Road. And then Jericho Road is subcontracting with Jewish Family Services, International Institute, Justice for Migrant Families, um, and Journey's End. Um, so... The money is technically coming from New York City, Um, and these folks are coming from New York City, and they're they're bringing resources into our community. Like these, they're they're contracting with organizations that are already here in Buffalo that are already pouring into the community and are going to be able to do continue to do so because of those resources. So that there's a direct tie to sort of the benefits of welcoming these folks. Um, But I also just want to say that it's not a crisis. It's not a problem. It's not an issue. And and while maybe my weeks got a little bit busier um, with folks being bussed in, the truth is, is that We are so well-equipped in Buffalo to do this care. We've been doing it for decades. And specifically at Vive, you know, for 35 years, Vive has been receiving asylum seekers. We know how to do this. We've done it. There are more asylum seekers in Vive, which has been happening, like I said, for 35 years, than there are in that hotel. So this is something, like, to put it into perspective, we are so well-equipped for this. As far as what folks can do to assist... Um, you can follow us on our social media. You, we are frequently um, sort of tweeting out other organizations that we're working with who are collecting donations. We're still trying to figure out exactly what .go is responsible for and what we're responsible for. Everything is sort of, you know, taking it as it comes. Um, but we will have information on our social media accounts and on our website. And then more largely speaking, If our state could pass, there's currently um, a bill being considered about access to representation. As many folks know, if you are charged with a crime in the United States and you don't have money for an attorney, you're given a public defender, a a criminal defense attorney. That is provided for you free of cost. But in these hearings where it is truly death penalty, it's life or death in these asylum cases, if you lose your asylum case and then you're sent back to that country— you very likely could get killed or will get killed. And so 
folks, these high stakes hearings and people are not given an attorney and they're not allowed to work until they have work authorization. And so how are they supposed to provide for themselves and provide an attorney for themselves? And so we need um, legislation that would permit attorneys, free attorneys for people who fall within the um, economic status for a free attorney in immigration court. Um, we also need better language access. There's also bills about language access. Um, at Jericho Road, we, we provide in-person language access, which most um, organizations do not do, but we have seen how beneficial that is when you are speaking to someone who is from your country, from your culture, and can really help to translate the whole, the context of what is being told to you and and maybe even connect with you in a community level. So we need more organizations stepping up to pay for that type of interpretation and then just better language access in general. Um, and then legal services. The thing that I am repeatedly mm -hmm. hearing and sort of what was promised to folks is that in Buffalo, you will have better access to language or you'll have better access to legal services. And we certainly hope that that is true. We are working hard to make sure that that is true. But we need our Journeys End Volunteer Lawyers Project. We need them to be able to have time to train and to hire um, attorneys who can take these cases and funds to do that. That is going to make a world of difference for these folks. The quicker you apply for asylum, the quicker you can get work access or work authorization. The quicker you can get work authorization, the quicker you can provide for your family, pay for your own apartment, and sort of move on without, you know, needing to rely on other services. Once again, that conversation took place back in June of this year. Since then, Alberto and his wife now find themselves in Amherst. Two cases of sexual assault occurred in the refugee settlement hotels in Chictawaga, which have caused local officials and Mark Polencars to announce that Erie County would no longer be bringing in new migrants to the area. Concerns are rising that New York City and DOCGO the medical services company that has been dealing with the welfare of the over 500 immigrants here in Erie County may soon be unable to sustain them. New York City Mayor Eric Adams. We have to feed, clothe, house, educate the children, wash their laundry sheets, give them everything they need, health care. And this team here, we stated, let's do everything possible before we have to push it out into neighborhoods and communities. Month after month, I stood up and I said, this is going to come to a neighborhood near you. Well, we're here. We're here. We're getting no support on this national crisis. And we're receiving no support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just getting Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. 
Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. It's going to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. I said it last year when we had 15,000. I'm telling you now, with 110,000, the city we knew, we're about to lose. Seven counties, excluding Erie, have issued emergency orders banning hotels from housing migrants. New York Governor Kathy Hochul recently asked President Biden for federal assistance to deal with the mounting fiscal burden that these migrants are causing to New York City and state. There's $1 billion in this year's budget allocated for migrant support. She also urged the president and Congress to help expedite work permits for asylum seekers so that they can get to work and become self-supporting. The reality is we've managed thus far without substantive support from Washington. And despite the fact that this is a national, indeed an inherently federal issue. But New York has shouldered this burden for far too long. Since the first migrants began arriving at the Port Authority bus terminal last year, city and state have poured tremendous funds, billions of dollars and energy into helping them. The city has helped, been helping by the state to manage this in partnership with our state legislature. And in our budget, we allocated over $1 billion, now upwards of $1.5 billion for providing shelter National Guard, public health, transit, case management, and legal services to asylum seekers, especially the housing. That's in addition to the over 200 shelters and hotels that are stood up by the city of New York with some financial support from the state. But now, many of you are starting to see open space turn into enormous temporary shelters. Buses arriving at hotels in several upstate counties the bottom line is you're wondering, what does this mean for me and my community? And what are our government leaders doing to address it? I do believe we have a moral imperative to help these new arrivals. I'm grateful to the counties that have welcomed and supported the migrants, and we will continue to partner with them. But to level with New Yorkers, bearing much needed changes at the border, there does not appear to be a solution to this federal problem anytime soon. And that's exactly why I need to talk to you today. This crisis originated with the federal government, and it must be resolved through the federal government. The borders and decisions about who can work are solely determined by the federal government. And since July of 2022, in our first meeting with the president, Mayor Adams and I have championed the idea of a federal designation that would allow the individuals already here in New York the ability to work, to support themselves and their families. The mayor and I said then, and in countless meetings with Congress, the White House, cabinet members, at rallies with labor, press conferences, and working with business, what we've said all along is just let them work and help us out financially. That's why today, I have sent a letter to President Biden formally requesting immediate executive action in four key areas. First, 
expedited work authorization so we can get these people out of shelters and into the jobs. Financial support for federal housing vouchers, schools, healthcare, legal services, case management, and shelter for us to provide to these asylum seekers. The use of more federal facilities to construct new temporary shelters. And reimbursement for the cost of our National Guard, which have been on the ground at these shelters throughout the state since last year. I've spoken to many on farms and businesses and hotel owners and restaurant owners and nursing home owners and hospital proprietors. They all tell me, Governor, what can you do about the shortage of workers? We have countless unfilled jobs that are begging for someone to just take them. So we need to do something. And here's what we can do. New Yorkers from across the state, Democrats and Republicans have asked me for help placing these migrants into jobs, jobs that have gone unfilled for too long. We are ready to act as soon as these migrants receive work authorization. Until that happens, we'll continue to need funding and sites from the federal government to help cover the massive expenses of sheltering tens of thousands of people in our country and our state today. But also, ultimately, we need comprehensive immigration reform from Congress. We are a state that cherishes our diversity and our, and our inclusiveness, and we always will. For me, the answer to these two crises, this humanitarian crisis and our workforce crisis, is so crystal clear in common sense. Let them get the work authorizations. Let them work legally. Let them work. Among these people is Alberto. While he's receiving legal help with his petition for asylum, he's still without work authorization. He still remains hopeful that he'll get those documents, despite the constant worry that he and his wife may be left out on the street any day. 2021 census data show that New York State's population rose for the first time in 70 years, mainly because of an influx of immigrants and resettled refugees in the state. While we continue to hear the political back and forth that occurs, it's important that we remember that for each one of these case numbers and figures on headlines, there are real stories and real people behind them. Thank you to Catherine Grange and Jericho Road for allowing us to have this conversation with Alberto. And thank you to our Dallas Taylor for voicing Alberto. We appreciate you listening to What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. You're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.